Welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London, and I'm pleased to set. In a moment, the British diplomats in Russia packing their bags tonight. And in the second half of our programme, we'll get more on the allegations that a political consultancy firm mishandled Facebook users' data, all part of an effort, it said, to support President Trump's election campaign. We'll speak to the journalist whose newspaper broke the story. And we have the final instalment of Owen Bennett-Jones' epic investigation into the death of Benazir Bhutto, who was behind the killing of the former Prime Minister of Pakistan. The realities of Pakistani politics duck, weave, dodge, try not to confront. So stay with us. And we start with the escalating diplomatic row between Moscow and Washington. The day began with Russia making its move by expelling 23 British diplomats, a copy of Britain's expulsion of Russian diplomats after a nerve agent attack on the former Russian spy Sergei Sklipal and his daughter Yulia. They remain critically ill in hospital here in the UK after they were found unconscious on a bench in the quiet city of Salisbury in southwest England. Britain says the identification of the nerve agent Novichok led straight back to Russia, which Moscow vehemently denies. This diplomatic tit-for-tat echoes the worst days of the Cold War. And in a moment, we'll hear from someone who was expelled in the 1980s from Moscow. But first, a bit of what Britain's Prime Minister, Theresa May, had to say this morning. Russia's response doesn't change the facts of the matter. The attempted assassination of two people on British soil for which there is no alternative conclusion other than that the Russian state was culpable. It is Russia that is in flagrant breach of international law and the Chemical Weapons Convention. I repeat today that we have no disagreement with the Russian people. Many Russians have made this country their home, and those who abide by our laws and make a contribution to our society will always be welcome. But we will never tolerate a threat to the life of British citizens and others on British soil from the Russian government. (laughs) Theresa May on this escalating row between Moscow and London. So do we know who the British diplomats are who will be packing their bags? A question for our Moscow correspondent, Sarah Rainsford. We know that they only just found out. Uh, Certainly, I'd been speaking to some of the embassy staff a a few days before this decision came through, and they were very worried that uh, some of their names might be on the list. Nobody knew. So fairly unnerving times. Uh, Now the 23 names have have been given, handed to the ambassador. And of course, those people now know who they are. We don't still. That's a a list that's being kept secret. Uh, Certainly, the 23 that uh, were ordered to leave London, Britain said that those were undeclared intelligence agents. Uh, Moscow denied that, said that they were just ordinary diplomats. As for the British uh, citizens uh, being compelled now to leave Moscow, we just don't know what their status is. But one would imagine that some of them at least uh, were presumably intelligence agents here too. Is there an established procedure, Sarah, that happens when diplomats are, are ordered to leave? I think, you know, the, the main thing that we know is that they have no choice. Um, this is something that happens quite regularly a, around the world, and certainly it's been happening with increasing frequency here in, in Moscow. We saw American diplomats uh, asked to leave uh, not so long ago, and, and now it's British diplomats who are packing their bags. Uh, they have a week. They've been given the same amount of time that the uh, Russian diplomats in, in London uh, were given to leave. So there is that kind of uh, parity there, if you like, that's been maintained. Uh, there are other measures, of course, though, that the, the Russians are taking. They're 
closing down the British Council, they're stopping its work, and they're closing a consulate in St. Petersburg. And I think, you know, the British Council in particular is quite interesting because there's been a bit of a backlash against that here, particularly on social media when you read the comments uh, that people have been making, saying that, look, yet again, uh, Russia's measures are actually targeting Russian citizens and not so much the British government, which is uh, supposed to be the target of those, uh, of those sanctions. And even as this, the tension escalates with these, uh, these retaliatory moves, there's still the argument over what really happened with this uh, nerve agent attack. And the, the Russians are still denying that they ever made the nerve gas, Novichok as it's called, on Russian territory. What are they saying? Well, that's interesting, actually, because it, it almost seems like they're hardening their position because watching state TV here, which is, um, you know, it, it doesn't say anything unless it's uh, been cleared from above. Um, a few days ago, we were listening to state TV talking about Novichok, this nerve agent, and saying, oh, look, that was something that was produced in the Soviet Union, not in Russia. It was tested in Uzbekistan. It was nothing to do with Russia. You know, you're confusing Russia and the Soviet Union. Suddenly now, Russian officials and particularly the foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zaharova have been extremely firm and very, very adamant that Novichok is absolutely nothing to do with Russia and never was, even in Soviet times. Uh, and she's been, uh, she gave an interview actually to us this evening and she was, uh, she was almost screaming about this particular point and saying that in fact Novichok was uh, originally developed in, uh, in uh, Russia but then the, the technology and the, 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 all the, the science behind it was taken away in the 1990s by the scientists scientists who worked on the program and it was only ever produced in the West. And she was saying that basically it's the West that produced this, it's the West that's used it, Russia has got nothing to do with it. Because the accusations coming out of London have gone from highly likely to Boris Johnson directly accusing the Russian President Vladimir Putin. I mean, is there, this may not be clear yet, but it is possible that others could have used these nerve agents or is it so... Uh, sensitive that would have to be a state which was behind it? Well, the British government's arguing that it could only have been a state. And certainly, you know, in, in counterbalance to what the foreign minister is saying here now adamantly, and as I say, shouting about very, very, very loudly in actual fact, um, one of the scientists who worked on the programme does indeed live in America now. But he, he has written about and talked about in, in many places the fact that the programme was here in Russia uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s. He describes the tests that were undertaken here. Uh, and he talks about, in fact, an accident uh, in which one of his colleagues died when he was exposed to the gas. So I think, you know, it, it's quite clear that the programme was did exist here in Russia. It did exist in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it appears that the, the, the Russian government is simply uh, and adamantly denying having anything to do with it. And I think, you know, that's part of this uh, very, very strong reaction now here in, in Moscow to everything that's coming from the UK. We've heard the Foreign Ministry today simply accusing Theresa May of lying and saying that the government is behaving as a in, in a boorish manner um, with no facts and unproven accusations and that Russia simply has had enough of that. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford. Well, the last mass expulsion of alleged Russian spies from London took place in September 1985 at the height of the Cold War. 25 Soviet diplomats were ordered to leave and Russia retaliated by expelling 25 British nationals, diplomats and journalists, including a young Reuters journalist, Alan Phelps, who'd just arrived in Moscow. I was at home and the British embassy rang up, I think it was the number two, and said, oh, Alan, will you, will you drop by the embassy because so we can have a chat? And I got the understanding that this was going to be a briefing for journalists because I'd arrived so recently, I didn't think I was going to be kicked out. So I went with a telegraph correspondent who arrived even more recently than me. 
And we arrive at the embassy and it was filled with uh, diplomats and families uh, who were about to be expelled. There were, there were a good dozen of them. And they all said, oh, have you been expelled too? And I said, no, 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 no. We just come to hear what's uh, here, hear the inside, uh, the inside track. But that was completely wrong. Um, we were given uh, a piece of paper with uh, 25 names on it. And I looked in the journalist section and there indeed was my name. And I pointed to uh, my colleague Robin's uh, name and he said, what's that? And I said, that's your name. And he said, I can't be expelled. I've only been here a couple of weeks. Anyway, so that's how we found out. And we were given three weeks to leave. I should have been a bit more on the ball and realized when these things are about to happen, you know, everyone in the foreign community knows that uh, the axe is going to fall and people talk of nothing else. Were you able to fight it? Did you want to fight it? No, the only thing you could do, um, I did go and see someone senior at the foreign ministry and they said, how can, how can this outrage happen? And all he said was, well, you know, we have to do these things when, um, when uh, Britain behaves so badly. But he said, we have no, we have no claims against you. Um, I took that to mean that um, I wasn't guilty as charged. And of course, uh, most of the people who are expelled are not guilty as charged. The real people who are engaged in intelligence work uh, are surrounded by a, um, a, great, um, a great phalanx of people who have uh, absolutely nothing to reproach themselves for. And had you actually unpacked arriving in Moscow before you had to pack again uh, yes, to leave? I've been, been there about four months. I still felt that I was um, uh, finding my feet, shall we say. And this was the beginning of the Gorbachev era. So from my point of view, I was forced out just when working in Moscow got really interesting. And did you spend the three weeks trying to find out as much as possible and do as much as possible in Russia before you left? It would have been good to uh, say goodbye to various people who um, we had known actually since 1979, ordinary people. But there was a sense that we were being followed and it was dangerous for anyone to be seen with us or, or, to, or to speak with us. So we sort of stuck with the foreign community, which was unfortunate, but um, that, that's the way it turned out. And did you and your fellow journalists who were being expelled, did you do anything together, have a party before you left? Well, I have beside me uh, a, a photograph, and there's uh, someone from The Observer, uh, another Reuters correspondent, because there was a second round of expulsions. I think it was ended up in ended up at uh, 31 in all, which turned out to be really eviscerated uh, the British embassy and, of course, the Russian speakers uh, in the foreign office. Because uh, the problem with these tit-for-tat expulsions is the Russians have an almost unlimited supply of diplomats who speak English, but the foreign office has only a limited number of Russian speakers. And once they've been expelled, they don't get back. Why, Alan, do you think it was you? There were There was more British correspondents there? Why, why would you have been chosen? I think there were a number of uh, Soviet journalists expelled, and I think that included the number two of the Novosti News Agency. So I was the number two at Reuters, so that was the uh, direct correlation. You could say that by expelling me, they got two for the price of one, because my wife, um, the famously good Russian speaker, was actually working in the embassy at the time. She was with the British Council. And in fact, uh, the only Russian speaker or any good Russian speaker in, in the British Council organizing educational exchanges. Uh, and I don't think uh, it went down very well with the Soviet authorities. But there was someone who actually knew what was going on. 
I have to say that as a journalist, one of the things I most dislike is being told I have to leave a place before I'm ready to leave. For you, when you were on that plane out of Moscow, what were your emotions? Actually, we drove to the border, so we drove out through Finland. I was um, I was very sad because I knew this was going to be a really important time. And of course, despite the expulsions, uh, Thatcher and Gorbachev um, went on to have a great relationship. It was only less than a year before the expulsions that uh, Thatcher famously said that uh, Gorbachev was a man she could do business with. And indeed, after the expulsions, she did do business with him. I regretted it. My wife uh, regretted it. I think uh, for the for the diplomats who may have spent three years learning Russian, this was a very serious setback. They wouldn't be going back to Moscow. Well, they thought forever, but now it is a different country. It's Russia, not the Soviet Union. It is possible for some people to go back. Alan Phelps, here in London. Coming up, we hear from a Russian dissident in London who believes he's now a target. And as the Syrian war enters its eighth year, we hear from Afrin in the northwest of the country. Houses and buildings are bombarded. And this is why we left the city of Afrin. Human rights organizations must speak about these things. We have no money, we have nothing, we have kids. All of us left our houses. Where can we go? And our main headline this hour on the BBC World Service, US officials say they're investigating allegations that a political consultancy mishandled Facebook users' data in an effort to support President Trump's election campaign. We'll be hearing more about that in 15 minutes. So stay with us here on NewsHour. listening to NewsHour. I'm Lise Doucette and we're coming to you live from London. And now to the final episode in our series about the assassination of the former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. As you may know, for the past 12 weeks, we've been bringing you extracts of this podcast about her death by my colleague Owen Bennett-Jones. Ms Bhutto's assassination in Rawalpindi 10 years ago changed the course of Pakistan. There are many conspiracy theories about her death, but everyone agrees on one thing. The assassin was a suicide bomber, just 15 years old. But who was behind the operation? Owen has been looking at the long-running investigation into who did it. And in recent weeks, we've learned that Benazir Bhutto felt threatened by Pakistan's president at the time, Pervez Musharraf. We know the bomb scene where she died was hosed down about an hour later, washing away the evidence. And the former president Musharraf is charged now in connection with the murder and lives in Dubai. In last week's installment of the assassination, he answered the accusations and denied them. Instead, he accused Asif Ali Zadari, Benazir Bhutto's husband, who did go on to become president after her death. In this final extract, we hear Mr. Zadari's response. So what do you say to those people? I just say, shut up. What else will I say? Shut up. It's my wife. It's the mother of my children. How do you know? Have you had lived through such circumstances? Then only you can relate to this pain. If you haven't, then just shut up. Asif Zadari's son, Bilal. The facts on Musharraf murdered my mother. It's what his mother said too. But of course, a court has yet to rule. And that will only happen if Musharraf returns to Pakistan to answer the charge. 
What a lot of Pakistanis can't understand is this. After Benazir Bhutto was killed, her husband won power. So, he was in a great position to investigate what happened. But he didn't. By my reckoning, there is a pretty obvious explanation. The deep state didn't want him to, and he was afraid. As he once told me when he was president, what's my chief objective in this term of office? To be alive at the end of it. And if he didn't want to upset the army when he was president, why upset it now when he has even less protection? He is still not blaming the army. When you were in power, some of your senior advisers have said it was difficult for you to investigate what had happened because the army didn't want you to. The institution is not to be blamed because it had nothing to do with it. So was the army a constraint in your mind? The army was never a constraint in my mind. The fact was that we had to finish all the wolves. The wolves, he said, out to kill her. I think there were a lot of wolves. So, Baitullah Masood, Hakimullah Masood... The Taliban leaders? All the Taliban leaders, practically, were got. Were killed? One way or the other, they were got. Al-Qaeda? Yes, one way or the other. Most of them. But those retired officers and others who possibly were involved? Some have died. And the others? Natural deaths. And the others? And the others, I think... I've left this path. They've left this path of... Of, you know, running with the hare and hunting with the hound. Running with the hare and hunting with the hound. Intelligence officers sworn to fight militants who instead conspire to work with them. Such a Pakistani remark. The institution of the army is not to be blamed. But former state officials? Well, maybe they were involved... What's to be done about it? Nothing. That's how it goes. The realities of Pakistani politics. Duck, weave, dodge. Try not to confront. What a mess. Former President Sadari believes new nuggets of information will still come out. What about President Musharraf? Do you think we'll ever know who killed her? We can know it if the government wants to investigate and find out. But unfortunately, that's not the case. They don't want to investigate and find out. All they want is to victimise me. And do you ever wonder whether there were rogue elements within the establishment who were in touch with the Taliban, Bayatullah Masood? Well, possibility, yes, indeed. Society is quite polarised on religious uh, lines. Uh, so this polarising, this polarisation there could be any kind of elements, yes. Really? And so that could have had a bearing on her death? Uh, could. Could, yes. Because she was not uh, uh, in the religious lobby. Uh, she was not at all popular. It, when you say that, is that entirely speculation or have you heard things that make you wonder about that? No, no, I don't uh, have any facts uh, available. But I, my assessment is, and I think the assessment is fairly accurate, I think. 
because of our society our society is religiously oriented a lady who is known to be inclined towards the west is seen suspiciously by those elements this is for me as someone who's covered pakistan for more than two decades a pretty amazing statement a former army chief a former president says elements within the establishment may have colluded to kill benazir bhutto like i said what a mess Benazir's autobiography was called Daughter of the East. Many, though, saw her as a daughter of the West. The ease with which she moved through both worlds impressed many, but alienated some. It's safe to say the Taliban hate people like her. But does that explain why she was killed? For me, the answer is no. While I can't be sure why she was killed... I think I know. And it has to do with nuclear weapons. Her opponents in the deep state value Pakistan's nuclear arsenal above all else. It is for them the supreme guarantor of Pakistani independence that neither America nor India can defeat. And the self-appointed guardians of the bomb, retired and serving generals, the most senior bureaucrats, the nationalists, the Islamists... They never trusted Benazir with the bomb. In her first government, they wouldn't let her. The Prime Minister even tore the country's nuclear installations. As the President at the time told her, you don't need to know. Shortly before her death, Benazir Bhutto had spoken in public in Washington about cooperating with the international community over Pakistan's nuclear proliferation. She suggested that she would be willing to hand over the father of the Pakistani nuclear bomb, the scientist A.Q. Khan, for questioning by the International Atomic Energy Agency. A.Q. Khan has confessed to exporting weapons of mass destruction. Many Pakistanis are cynical about whether A.Q. Khan could have done this without any official sanction. While we do not agree at this stage to have any Western access to A.Q. Khan, we do believe that the International Atomic Energy uh, Commission would have the right to put questions uh, to A.Q. Khan. I believe that's what killed her. She'd crossed the reddest of all red lines. The deep state feared she'd return to power in Pakistan and they couldn't let that happen. And there you have it, Owen Bennett-Jones from the BBC, The Assassination Podcast. You can find it online. Stay with us. You're listening to NewsHour on the BBC World Service. Coming up next, we'll get more on the US official investigation into allegations that a political consultancy mishandled Facebook users' data in a bid to support Donald Trump's election campaign. But first to talks between North Korea and Sweden, which have just ended. Sweden has appealed to Pyongyang to dismantle its nuclear arms program after three days of talks. The Swedish Foreign Ministry said it had underlined the need for North Korea to comply with Security Council resolutions. And the ministers discussed efforts to reach a peaceful solution to the conflict on the Kurnian Peninsula. Well, Carl Bildt is a former Swedish Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. I asked him about this special relationship between Sweden and North Korea. It so happens that we set up diplomatic relations in the mid-1970s. I mean, that was connected also with the belief that we could do some business, 
but it was also connected with the fact that we had uh, and still are um, one of the neutral military observers in Panmunjong, uh, which means that we have a, a military contingent at the armistice line. And then it was important to have diplomatic relations both with South Korea, which we've had for a long time, and with North Korea. And the embassy has been there since then. For a long time, we were the only Western embassy there. I think there are now quite a number of them. So, for example, when you hear, as we all have, that the talks have ended with an appeal by the Swedish government for North Korea to dismantle its nuclear program, as someone who knows something about North Korean diplomacy, what was your reaction when you heard that? Just rhetoric or something substantive? Well, I think it is what Sweden has to say. We are part of the Security Council at the moment. We are part of the European Union. Of course, we have to appeal to North Korea to abide by the international obligations that they have to dismantle their nuclear program. Is it likely that the North Koreans have come to Stockholm and said we're going to fold it down and we're going to agree to everything the Americans say? No, that's highly unlikely. If the North Koreans are going to make any concessions, they're going to make them directly to the Americans, fairly obviously. I hope they have been important in terms of getting increasing clarification on some of the North Korean positions. But I don't think anyone expects these particular talks to produce any breakthrough. But any attempt to get uh, better insights into the possible thinking and possible behavior of Pyongyang is, of course, useful in a situation like this. And would that be shared with President Trump's administration, whether or not they're looking for it? I'm quite certain that those things that are to be shared will be shared. It's not that we in Sweden are sitting here and trying to sort out the issues of the world. We are trying to be helpful to the international community. And accordingly, you must share your assessments and the information that you have, yes. And is there a sense that this is a a kind of a run-up to this possible summit between President Trump and the North Korean leader? One would hope. Uh, I think there will have to be quite a number of run-up to that particular meeting. We should not forget that there will be a meeting between the two presidents of the two Koreas. That will be highly important. I would assume there will be other diplomatic contacts taken prior to the summit meeting, because a summit meeting between these at least, well, possibly, probably, two rather volatile personalities uh, will, of course, be um, not entirely sort of uncomplicated and even um, possibly dangerous affair if it's not properly prepared. Carl Bildt of Sweden. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Lise Doucette and this is NewsHour. In the United States, shockwaves from the 2016 presidential election campaign are still reverberating. Yesterday, the FBI director, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, was sacked over allegations of bias. The investigations into Russian electoral interference plod on, and today, Facebook has been dragged in. U.S. officials say they are now investigating allegations that a company, Cambridge Analytica, hired by the Trump campaign to target potential voters on social media, mishandled Facebook users' data on a massive scale. Carol Cardwater is with the UK's Guardian newspaper, which broke the story. A Cambridge psychologist was contracted by Cambridge Analytica to harvest these Facebook profiles. Now, there's a bit of an argument over what his permissions were to do so, but he certainly did not have permission to extract this. It's the friends of the people. So a certain number of people were paid to take a personality quiz, and this gave this Cambridge uh, University academic access to their profiles. But what also happened is they also gave permission for him to access all of their friends' profiles. So these millions of people's profiles were taken without their knowledge or consent and then were used in ways which, um, you know, they've got no idea of and we still don't know. 
And that's Carol Cadwadler of the UK Garden, where our business correspondent Joe Lynham is with me now in the studio. It's all about our personal data, Joe, and the protection of it and our legal rights. Yes, it is. When we click that, do you understand the terms and conditions? How many of us read the tiny print? I would say maybe 1% read the tiny print. What happened, and Carol made reference to it there, was an app was developed in the University of Cambridge, uh, which harvested 270,000 people using the login profile for their Facebook page. And again, as was already said, they didn't know that they were also allowing all their friends' profiles to be used. So you can see 270,000 by an average of 200 friends per person. You're quickly at 50 million people here. So the information was then passed, and we're talking about gigabytes of information passed on to Cambridge Analytica, no relation to the university, who then used it in the US presidential election 2016. They targeted very specific voters with very specific messages based on the information that they'd harvested from this app. They were pro-Trump and they were anti-Hillary Clinton messages. For example, the African-American community in 2016 were targeted with anti-Hillary messages to encourage them to stay at home. And as you know, the turnout of African-American voters in 2016 was incredibly low compared to 2012 and 2008. So now we have the Attorney General for the state of Massachusetts saying that she will investigate this and is launching an investigation. She said that the residents deserved answers immediately on this issue. Here in the UK, the Information Commissioner's Office, which uh, analyzes data breaches and, and how you the husbandry of data, said it too has an investigation underway to establish the circumstances in which Facebook data may have been illegally acquired and used for political purposes. And what is uh, Cambridge Analytica saying about this? Well, they're flatly denying that they used any information acquired from this app that was developed four years ago uh, in the US election and that it only receives and uses data that has been obtained legally and fairly. And Facebook has also issued a statement? Yeah, they pushed back as well pretty firm, flatly denying that there'd been any data breach. Remember, this whistleblower uh, claims that 50 million Facebook profiles were illegally used or tapped into. They say there was been no breach and that people knowingly provided all that information and that its systems had not been identified. Remember that the, the rules of Facebook have changed in the four years. Four years ago... You didn't, uh, you, you, when you clicked a box, your information was shared with your friends of friends as well. Now, four years later, that is no longer possible. Wow, seems like a big story. I think it's going to, I think it's going to rumble on a bit because the Culture Committee of MPs here in the United Kingdom um, uh, may have issues with that because they've already heard from Cambridge Analytica and they've already heard from Facebook. Uh, there is a chance that they may wish to rehear from both of those companies. John Hunnam, thank you very much for coming in. In a week where Syria's destructive conflict entered its eighth year, there are reminders again this war is not over. One of the major front lines is in northern Syria, in the mainly Kurdish town of Afrin, which is under assault from Turkish warplanes and troops. Around 150,000 people are said to have fled the area in recent days. We've been suffering mortars for a week. People died. What can we do? We fled. We left everything and fled with our clothes. 
Houses and buildings are bombarded, and this is why we left the city of Afrin. Human rights organizations must speak about these things. We have no money, we have nothing, we have kids. All of us left our houses. Where can we go? The voices of people who are fleeing, well, they're fleeing an air and ground offensive launched by Turkey in January across its border into northern Syria. It says it's targeting Kurdish Syrian forces, the YPG, which it describes as terrorists linked to the Turkish Kurdish movement, the PKK. Earlier, I spoke to Rania, who's from the Afrin region. She said to flee her home and take refuge in a nearby village. I asked her about the Turkish airstrikes. Yesterday, uh, in the afternoon, there was uh, shells that uh, targeted an area called Al Mahmoudia, and it targeted cars that were uh, already packed with people uh, trying to flee Afrin and uh, flee the shelling. I personally lost a neighbor in uh, the village of Taranda and he's still in his car. No one can go and get his body. In addition to the airstrikes, is there fighting on the streets of Afrin between the Kurdish forces and the Turkish and their allies? Uh, I called my neighbors. They are still in the city. They told me that they cannot hear any close-by fighting. Street fighting hasn't started yet. And Ronnie, the people who are fleeing, where can they go for refuge, for uh, help? They are still in the Kurdish villages of Afrin, but to the southeast of Afrin, they are now closer to the areas held by the government. And these areas are still safe. They have been targeted, but very occasionally, you know. So these are the Syrian uh, uh, government, district? Syrian government areas. Of course, Syrian government. You, Rania, have you had to flee for safety yourself? Of course. I'm a resident of Jenderis. So Jenderis was the first town to be shelled. And intensively, before I fled Jenderis, we had to stay indoors for three days. And then our journey uh, started from one village to another till we were in Afrin. In Afrin, we couldn't find a place because... All the border villages, uh, the residents of those villages were already in Afrin and Afrin was packed and there was no more room. So we went on the borders and we are still here. I am in a village that gets some shells from time to time. So we flee to another village for sleep. And then in the morning, we come back to the same village we are in. And that was Rania speaking to me earlier from um, an area close to Afrin. Well, Aaron Stein is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Centre for the Middle East. I, he's got extensive contacts in the area around Afrin, so I asked him what he's been hearing. The Turkish military and the Turkish armed forces that fight alongside of it have encircled Afrin and by all accounts appear ready to storm the city any day now, if not already started. Uh, And I think the big question now is just how long it will take for these forces to overrun the YPG elements inside of it and how long it will take to take the city back. And what is the Turkish ambition if it does reach the scenario you just sketched? Yeah, I think the Turkish ambition is twofold. I mean, the first is that the intervention puts extreme pressure on the United States to reevaluate its own relationship with the Syrian Kurds. 
on the eastern side of the country. But I think more importantly, what's driving Turkey is an acute sense of vulnerability from the empowerment of Kurdish groups on its border. And then Afrin was always low-hanging fruit because it sticks out there. It's in the northwest of the country, and it has no great power, uh, the U.S. in particular, that's giving it the security guarantee. So what will happen to, to the Kurds of Afrin? As you know, they're a different group than, for example, the Kurds in Mambij, which is the area where they have been working with the United States in the battle against so-called Islamic State. This is a big open question. You know, this part of Syria, by all accounts, is sympathetic to the group Turkey is trying to oust, uh, the YPG, which is linked to the PKK. Uh, and then by all accounts, Turkey intends to impose a governing council that's linked to its own allied proxies or militias, which may or may not have legitimacy over those people that they will be tasked with ruling. So the Kurds that are caught in the middle uh, of what I expect to be you know, drawn out tensions on the ground is anybody's guess. I, I always assume that civilians in conflict zones just want the conflict to stop, uh, but there are hardliners on each side that will want to continue to fight each other. And is there a concern that uh, Turkey could move in new populations to the area that are more sympathetic or at least not hostile to Turkish concerns in that area about efforts to establish a separate Kurdish enclave? Absolutely. I mean, this is this is one of the things that I'm hearing on the ground, and I think a lot of people hear it too, is an acute sense of anxiety and vulnerability from the population in Afrin about what's coming. And I think a lot of that is driven by the rhetoric of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who says over and over again, you know, his multiple campaign stops per day is that one of the, the intentions after conflict ends or at least subsides is to move Syrian populations back into this enclave. It's unclear who those people will be because this place has been a suck for IDPs, uh, uh, fulfilling other conflict. And so it's, it's already just completely full of people. So it's, it's unclear what, what Turkey really intends to do here. And Turkey continues to say that there are no civilian casualties. Is that plausible given the scenes we're, we're hearing about and seeing in videos? No. I mean, clearly we've seen in videos there have been civilian casualties. I think in every major military operation in urban centers, there will be civilian casualties. The Turkish government does itself no favors when it pretends there are no civilian casualties. Uh, but I don't think the Turkish government is intentionally targeting civilians. I think it's unavoidable that civilians are caught in the crossfire of what is a heavy bombardment. Because, of course, the latest is that there are reports that Turkish airstrikes hit a hospital in Afrin, which the Turks are denying. Yeah, I mean, the propaganda war in this war is so thick that it's always impossible to tell what is truth and what is not. I think what is clear is, is that there was fighting around a hospital area. And it just goes to show just the dangers of getting involved in an urban conflict. And there'll be more of this to come as the fight moves into the cities. And is there hand-wringing discussions going on in Washington about what to do, what not to do to help the Kurds? Washington isn't the most uh, sane place at the moment. <laughs> so, But one of the things that is going on is extreme anxiety and discomfort with how the Turkish war in Afrin has upended the U.S. war on the other side of Syria and basically frozen the final stages of the war against Islamic State. So particularly within the military who are tasked with going out, finding and killing the Islamic State, there's hand-wringing discomfort and I would say anger at what is a distraction from their point of view to what the U.S. has been sent to do. Aaron Stein uh, of the Rufi Kariri Centre for the Middle East. You listen to the BBC World Service, a reminder of our top story this hour. Russia is expelling 23 British diplomats as the row over the nerve agent attack on a double agent continues. And we hear from Alan Phelps, uh, a journalist who was himself expelled from Moscow in 1985. 
we were given a piece of paper with uh, 25 names on it. And I looked in the journalist section and there indeed was my name. We were given three weeks to leave. I was very sad because I knew this was going to be a really important time. And of course, despite the expulsions, uh, Thatcher and Gorbachev um, went on to have a great relationship. And a reminder of our top headline this hour on the World Service, U.S. officials say they're investigating allegations that a political consultancy mishandled Facebook users' data in an effort to support President Trump's election campaign. Listening to News Hour on the BBC World Service. I'm Lise Doucette. Back to our top story the diplomatic tit for tat between London and Moscow. Britain's Prime Minister says uh, the UK will consider, consider more action against Moscow after the nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy. UK police have begun to contact a number of Russian exiles to discuss their safety as they investigate the murder of another Russian living in London, a businessman, Nikolai Glushkov. Police say there is no evidence at this stage linking both deaths. Well, I've been speaking to Alexei Sidenkov. He's a Russian dissident, also living in London. All of us, uh, we are enemies for Putin's regime, not for Russian people, of course. Most people who are now uh, in the power and around Putin, they are from KGB. It's their minds. The enemy must be destroyed. And we are the enemies for them. Do these latest developments make you nervous? Not about Skripal case, but when I heard what the guy who I know was found dead, I'm talking about um, Mr. Glushkov, and after this, I was very nervous, and I'm nervous now because uh, I understand that uh, I could be uh, the next target of people who I know who has political asylum in the UK must be next target. And the British security services came to see you? I went to Belize and I wrote uh, a letter about that I am very afraid about my life. Today, um, police uh, visited me at my home and they discussed about different cases. Is there, are there measures that you can take to, be, to protect yourself, like changing your daily routines, for example? No, I don't think so. And I can't. And I think that... Uh, this uh, is what uh, Putin's regime and people from Russian power, from Russian government want. Uh, they want that people like me must shut up our mouths. But the problem is I'm, uh, I'm a politician. I'm a political activist. I organize different events, uh, rallies, roundtable discussions. I'm an official person. I can't uh, just close my eyes and shut up my mouth. Tomorrow will be a rally uh, in front of Russian embassy, which uh, organized my movement, uh, speak up uh, about elections. Uh, on Monday, I'll, I have uh, event and discussion club. Of course, I'm trying to, to be safe as much as I can, but we understand if special securities from Russia want to kill someone, they will kill anyway. I need to be more official, more public, because only this could help me, nothing else. You've been in the United Kingdom for a decade now. Do you think, has there been ever any attempts on your life that you sensed? It was a usual uh, life in Russia when I lived there, before I escaped uh, from Russia. 
I every time were followed by uh, special securities in different regions in my own city in Moscow. It was a usual thing for me. And when uh, it happens here, someone follow me uh, sometimes from uh, when I'm going from official events. Sometimes people just came close to me and said that I'm enemy and my uh, I must be killed. So it's it's a usual thing. I, I didn't really care about it. But after these cases, when Spivak uh, was poisoning and Glushkov uh, was killed, I'm really afraid. A lot of people who I know in politics in Russia were killed. And that is Andrei Sidelnikov, Russian dissident in London. Well, no one's quite calling this a Cold War again, but it does have some echoes. There was, of course, no social media back then, no satellites, no mobile telephones. So preventing broadcasts from what were perceived as hostile nations was a big and bulky industry. From the 1950s, the Soviet Union operated a network of secret radio stations to jam broadcasts of Western radios and stop what was considered anti-Soviet propaganda. Rehan Dimitri went to meet some former workers of what had been a secret station in the Republic of Georgia. Pushing stray dogs out of her way, Nina Chagrova, who is in her 80s, is slowly walking up to her house. Nina lives in an aging 1950s two-story housing block. Inside her house, Nina switches the radio on and brings out a bundle of old papers wrapped in plastic. This is my history, she says, before coming across an award from 1974 that makes her laugh. <laughs> this is a special award for fulfilling social duties. Back then, when you received this honorary award with a Lenin uh, face on, on top of it, uh, what, what was your job, Nina? Я специалист по технике. Я инженер. I was a technician, a radio technician, looking after the equipment, transmitters. We used to get a frequency number and tune in our transmitters to that frequency. The rest was none of our business. The business Nina is reluctant to talk about was the jamming of foreign radio signals. But her former colleague, 84-year-old Aza Samliashvili, who lives next door, explains what they did. BBC, The mission of this radio station was to suppress signals. The BBC, Voice of America. We didn't know much about the frequencies we were suppressing. When we failed to activate transmitters on time, that was when we could listen to some of the programming, but then our interference would follow. It was like the noise of a raging river. Shh, but stronger. Georgia's radio station number five was part of a network of secret stations operated by the Soviet government from 1948 to the late 1980s. Its purpose was to suppress foreign radio broadcasts deemed anti-Soviet. Today, there are no antennas or equipment left at radio station number five. The old town hall, which also used to house a shop and a cinema, lies in ruins. Many former workers continue to live on the complex, but they feel abandoned. 
Back with Nina in her old apartment block. It's her radio that keeps her connected to the outside world. This is a new station. It's on the internet. It's on FM 99.3. People call in from England, Spain, and Italy. They get phone calls from all over the world. Rehan Dimitri on a secret radio station, and this is me, Lise Doucette, signing off from our radio station. Thanks for listening. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.